The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I apologize up front this morning if I sniffle or sneeze or cough on you. I've been uh, struggling with some upper respiratory stuff for a few weeks, so bear with me. Luke chapter 9, we begin this morning looking at verse 46, and we'll follow along through verse 50. Well, Luke writes, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and he put him by his side and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Well, if you want to know how the world around us defines greatness, you don't have to do very much more than just open up your newsfeed on any given day on your social media or on your smartphone or on your desktop computer. You could open up any news channel that you happen to like, and you could scroll through the the stories and the articles that are reported there, and you would immediately get a good sense for the kinds of people that our culture and our world defines as great. Who are the greatest people among us? Well, the greatest people among us are the people that are talked about. They're the people who are written about. They're the people who are reported on. Just this morning, I just did this quick little experiment, and I opened up my my news feed. And immediately I was confronted with names that are all familiar to you because you've seen them if you've ever opened your news feed. The first one I saw was Elon Musk. Do you know who Elon Musk is? Our culture says that he's great. Why is he great? He's great because he's rich, because he's filthy rich. He's a little weird too, but he's also rich. A lot of weird people that nobody writes about. But rich people, wealthy people, our culture says they're great. They're worth noting. They're worth writing about. They're worth following. When they say something, it's worth being heard. Because wealth defines greatness, at least in part, in our culture. And then I scrolled down a little further, I saw another name. I saw Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, two names in the same article. They're people who apparently are worth writing about in our culture, people who we should care about what they think and what they say and what they do. Why, why are they considered great in our culture? Well, because they're political figures who've been elected to office by large numbers of people. One the president, one speaker of the house. They're politically powerful. In our culture, not only does wealth make somebody great, but our culture says people who are powerful are also great. And so political leaders are written about. And we're expected to know what they say and what they think and care. I scrolled a little further, and I saw Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Apparently he's having some medical issues, and we should all know about that. You have medical issues, and nobody writes about it in the news. But when Justin Bieber has a medical issue, we all know about it. Why? Because our culture says he's great. Why is he great? Because he's a popular entertainer, at least among some circles, right? May not be your flavor of music, but if Justin Bieber does a concert, thousands of people flock there to see it and to hear it. He's a great entertainer. And if you're a great entertainer in our culture, a culture that exalts entertainment, then the culture says you're great. 
You should be noted. You should be written about. You should be read about. We should care what you think and say and do. Scrolled a little further and I saw LeBron James. LeBron James. Our culture considers him great. Why? Because he's a phenomenal athlete. He's an outstanding basketball player. He's a remarkable specimen of, a, of an athlete, physically. And he's really good at what he does. And people pay a lot of money to go watch him shoot a ball through a hoop. Of course, in his case, he doesn't have to shoot it very much. He just dunks it. But he's a great athlete. And our culture says great athletes are great. These are people who are great. This is what greatness looks like. And, and, and because they're great, we should care about what they think and say and do. So even when entertainers and athletes start talking about politics or public morality, we should all care what they think. Never mind the fact that they don't know anything more about those things than they do about anything else. But the culture says they're great, so we should listen. Our culture defines greatness in terms of wealth, in terms of power, in terms of entertainment skill, in terms of the eliteness of of athletic prowess. I scrolled a little further and I saw Kim Kardashian. You can hardly open a news feed without seeing somebody from that family and for the love of all things holy, I don't understand it. But apparently our culture considers the ladies in that family to be beautiful. And because they're considered beautiful, they're considered great. And therefore, we should care what they think and what they say and what they're doing. We should log into Instagram on any given moment and we should wait with bated breath to see what outfit they're wearing today or not wearing. Our culture says beauty makes you great. Wealth makes you great. Power makes you great. It's no surprise to us as we think about these things when we come to the Word of God and we begin to read how God defines greatness that it's 180 degrees opposite of what everything and every message in our culture has to say about what makes a person great. And if you, if you listen to the culture which you're inundated with all day, every day, through every form of media, and you and you isolate yourself from the Word of God, you will inevitably absorb the world's values of what greatness really is. And you'll begin to pursue them. In our text today, we're going to see the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ were tempted to embrace the world's understanding of greatness. And Jesus, in a very, very vivid way, corrects them, and he attempts to sort of reorient their self-understanding as we're going to see, he does so with only marginal effectiveness. But the words that he speaks to them are critical for us. Because we struggle with the same kind of pride that they struggled with. And it is a poison to the soul if it takes root. And Jesus understood its danger. And so he addresses it here and he addresses it over and over in their lives. Now, the text that we look at this morning sort of marks the end of a section of Luke's gospel. We've been working from chapter 1, verse 1, now to verse 50 of chapter 9. And we find at the end of verse 50 a sort of a turning point in the gospel. Verse 51 tells us that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase is important. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from this point on in the gospel of Luke, from verse 51 of chapter 9 to the very end of the gospel, and there's still a long ways to go, Luke is going to be talking to us about Jesus Christ and his march to Calvary, his march to the cross. Everything from this point on is, is leading us to his death and his resurrection. But before Luke turns our attention there, He gives us these two snapshots into the lives of the disciples that we need to hear. And he gives them to us for a reason. In this particular section, we have the disciples, we observe them as outsiders, reading about them, involved in two arguments. Two arguments. The first is an internal sort of an argument. The second is an external argument. 
The, the first argument that they get into, it, it involves sort of competition with one another. The second argument they get into, it, it involves competition with other ministers. Both arguments are born out of abject arrogance and self-exaltation. Both arguments are oozing with human pride and a completely jacked up idea of what greatness is. And both arguments reveal how these men are utterly lacking in anything that resembles true humility. And Jesus rebukes them for both arguments. Through two different encounters here in the text, in this little short section, Luke is going to show us that the disciples in both cases would have been much better off if they had just done three things. If they had just shut their mouths, if they just minded their own business, and they had embraced a life of humble servanthood. They would have been so much better off if they had just done those three things. And we would be so much better off if more frequently we just did those three things too. I hope you'll see it this morning in the text. In verse 46, he introduces to this first argument. And he simply tells us an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, in order to, to fully appreciate this argument, you have to pause for a minute and recall what Jesus has been teaching them frequently up to this point. If you were to sort of rewind your way back through chapter 9 and look at what has Jesus been talking about? What has he been teaching? What has he been saying? What has he been instructing them on? Well, you could just go, all, go back to verse 22, and he said to them, in, in relative, like chronologically, pretty close proximity, he said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Me, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. If you continue on in verse 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, that's what's going to happen to me. If you want to follow after me, here's what you do. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he loses or forfeits his soul. I mean, direct, piercing, convicting kind of talk from Jesus, right? And so these men are walking down the road with Jesus on to their, to their next stop, and they're thinking about all the things that have happened and what conversation begins to arise among them in light of what Jesus has been teaching. Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that remarkable? They literally get into an argument with one another about which one of the 12 is the greatest. It's not told what prompted the argument. We could anticipate or maybe guess what prompted the argument. I don't know, maybe somebody started the conversation with, you know guys, you guys are, are, are pretty, pretty good dudes, but you know what? I think when this whole thing pans out, I'm going to be the guy at the top. I mean, there's Jesus, of course. I'm not, I'm not taking Jesus' spot. But if you look at Jesus, like, I'm going to be right next to Jesus. And the rest of you guys are going to fall out underneath here somewhere. And you can imagine the rest of them responding to that conversation. You? What do you mean, you? What makes you so great? I don't think you're any better than I am. And maybe they were looking back on their recent missionary journey that the Lord launched them out on two by two. And maybe they started comparing with one another all the things that happened. And, and maybe they started, you know, adding points to the system, right? Well, how many baptisms did you have? I had 12 baptisms. Well, not, I had 14. I'm above you. Two points for a baptism. Well, I healed 16 sick people. How many points do you get? Healings are only one point. And you can hear one of them say, well, I raised a dead guy. That's got to be five points, right? Let's add them up the points, and that'll tell us who's the best. 
How many people came and listened to you when you spoke? Well, I had a thousand. How many did you have? Well, I had a thousand and ten. I'm better than you. Maybe they were comparing the results. Maybe they were comparing how the Lord had used them in their missionary journey. Maybe what prompted it is the fact that just not too long in the past, or not too far back in the past, the Lord had singled out Peter, James, and John for a second time and had taken them on a sort of an exclusive adventure, if you will, up a mountain for the transfiguration. Maybe, maybe that caused those three men to begin to think, hey, we're a little more important than the rest of these guys here. Like, you guys are all pretty good, and you know, I can see that the Lord uses you, but hey, you didn't get to go up the mountain. We went up the mountain. I can hear Nathaniel or somebody saying, yeah, but we're not the ones who said, hey, Jesus, let's make some tents and hang out up here. You can hear somebody saying to Peter, Peter, you might have got to go up the mountain, but you say the dumbest things. I don't say dumb things near as much as you do. I don't know what the argument looked like, but I know it looked like any argument that people get into when they start jockeying about who's the greatest. And it's particularly abhorrent and repulsive because Jesus has just finished teaching them that what it means to follow him is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and go to death with him. And they are literally following him down the street, arguing about who's the greatest. It's almost hard to imagine. Mark tells us as he reports this that, they, that Jesus waits till they get to their destination, which is a house, and he waits till he gets there to ask them about it. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, Mark records this. He says, and they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. So the argument's over at this point. They're in the house. Maybe they settled it. Maybe they came up with a pecking order. And Jesus says, hey, guys, what was he, I saw you talking back there on the road. What were you chatting about? Now, when Jesus asks questions, he doesn't ask questions to get information. He knew what they were talking about. Can you imagine their faces when he asked the question? Everybody staring at their shoes. Nobody spoke up. Nobody had anything to say. Oh, we were talking about anything, Jesus. No, there's nothing. No worries. Don't worry about that. Nothing. They were quiet. They said nothing. The Lord had just finished telling them about his humiliating treatment and the death that awaits him. And all they can think about is when his kingdom arrives, who's going to be on top? They still don't understand the nature of his kingdom, that his kingdom is not going to be an earthly kingdom that he's getting ready to set up now, but his kingdom is a different nature they don't understand that yet, even though he's been explaining it over and over, and they still do not understand their place in his kingdom either. They think, hey, we're the elite 12. When he sets up this kingdom, we're going to be his cabinet. The only question is who's going to be vice president. And the whole episode is just oozing with sinful pride, the kind of pride that God hates. Throughout his word, God has a lot to say about this kind of sinful pride, the kind of pride that measures itself against somebody else and says, hey, I'm better. The kind of pride that looks at itself and looks at someone else and says, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm one step beyond you. Proverbs eight thirteen, the Bible tells us pride and arrogance are the way of evil. Proverbs 16, 5 it says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. I want you to read that with me. Just let it come off of your lips. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. This is no small thing that these men are dealing with. It is, in fact, an abomination to the Lord. In fact, if you listen to our scripture reading this morning in Galatians 5 that David read, you heard him read from the words of the Apostle Paul who said that people who live consistently this way with this kind of pride and arrogance marking out their lives are people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This kind of sinful, self-exalting pride is not a small thing. And it should never be excused when we find it in our hearts. This was a conversation that never should have happened. Never should have happened. You can go back to Daniel chapter 4. I won't do it this morning, but you can read about King Nebuchadnezzar, a man who really was great in every way that the world describes great. And you can find the dramatic way that when he exalts himself up before the Lord, the Lord crushes him and humbles him. And the man who was the greatest in his empire at the time ends up spinning around and saying, you know what? At the end of the day, here's one truth you better get. The Lord knows how to humble the proud. He knows how to humble the proud. And Nebuchadnezzar said that from personal life experience. The Lord gives grace to the humble. But the proud he brings low. These men should have never opened their mouths. This conversation should have never happened. They had no business talking about this. They should have kept their mouths absolutely shut. The reality of the fact of the matter was none of them were great. To compare greatness with one another was the stupidest argument to ever get into because none of them were great to start with. You have to be great to be able to argue about who you're greater than. And none of these men were great. The only great things that they had done had been done by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in them. There's nothing about them that was particularly great. They deserve precisely zero credit for any spiritual accomplishment that they had had at that point in their lives. Zero. No credit whatsoever. It was all of Christ. It was all of the Holy Spirit. Before Christ called them into the ministry, they were nobodies. And apart from Christ, they were still nobodies. And if anything good was coming out of their lives, if any ministry was effective that was happening because of them, it was not because of them, it was because of Christ in them by Spirit. They had nothing to boast about. They had nothing to about them that, that set them apart from one another. And in case you're wondering if this was an isolated event in their lives, it was not. Jesus corrects it here. But if you fast forward in time and you get right down toward the end of the gospel where we have Jesus sitting with them at a table, instituting the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22, literally at the Lord's table, my friends, Luke says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as what? as the greatest. I mean, they're still talking about this. Still talking about this. What does that say to you and to me? If the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked with him daily, saw him do miracles, listened to the words roll right off of his lips, if they struggled with pride at that kind of a level, with that kind of a depth, that frequently, right up to the very end, you and I are fools if we think this is not a temptation for us. You better believe it is. The same kind of corruption and rot that infested their hearts and continually, continually raised itself up inside of them is the same kind of rot that finds itself inside of your heart and mind and continually raises itself up in your life and mind too. And just like them, we are the least qualified to identify it in ourselves. Somebody outside of us quite frequently needs to identify it for us. Let me ask you a question. Are there people in your life that have permission to do that? Are there people in your life that have permission to come alongside of you and say, hey, listen, you're being prideful. You know what you said just a moment ago? That came off really arrogant. Are you beginning to think that you're better than that other person? Have you forgotten that you're really not that great? That the only thing good about you is what Christ has made you into. Does anybody have permission to do that in your world and in your life? If they don't, they should. My friends, there is never any spiritual benefit to comparing ourselves to other people. 
There's none. There's, there's no good into that. There is no righteous result to me comparing myself to you spiritually or to you comparing yourself to me or to you comparing yourselves to one another because one of two things is gonna be the result. I'm either gonna judge myself better than you and I'm gonna be tempted to pride or I'm gonna judge myself worse than you and I'm gonna be tempted to despair. Neither one of those is a place where a Christian needs to live. We compare ourselves to Christ. That's our standard. And compared to him, we all fall short. And it's by grace that we live every day, by his mercy. These men should have just shut their mouth. They had no business talking about these things. The reason they were talking about them is because their hearts were corrupt and Jesus orients them that way by giving them a visible living illustration. In verse 47 and following, Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and he put him by his side and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is also, excuse me, is the one who is great. Well, the disciples didn't have to answer Jesus' question. Jesus knew what they were talking about on the road. He had a, a clear picture of it. But in this case, instead of giving a sort of a direct verbal rebuke, he gives them a living illustration. And he simply calls for a little child that happened to be nearby. And he says, bring the child. And, and he has a little, little, little fella next to him. And he begins to talk. Now, for us to understand the point of having this child in front of us, we need to have some sort of sense of first century culture because it's a place that's very different than our culture. And if we don't get it, we won't understand what Jesus is trying to communicate here. They were a very different culture, particularly in regards to how children were viewed. In our culture, how are children viewed? Pretty high or pretty low? Do we value children? High, low. Nod your head if you think high. Nod your head if you think low. Okay, I think we value children pretty highly. Anything, look, think about any political issue that anybody argues. Somewhere in the argument is, we have to do this for the children, right? Isn't that right? Children are at least to some degree important in our culture. In the first century, children had very, very low status. Children were really at the bottom of the social ladder. Edwards is helpful here when he writes this. He says, we are mistaken... If we imagine the Greek and Jewish societies extolled the virtues of childhood as is generally true in modern Western society. Societies with high infant mortality rates and high demand for human labor are not sentimental about infants and youth. Until children could contribute to the labor force, they simply had not arrived. They were quite literally the least among you. Daryl Bach writes this. He says, in Judaism, children under 12 could not be taught the Torah, and so to spend time with them was considered a waste. Children were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were not held to a high degree of importance. They were, in a very sense, the very clear sense in their culture, the least of these. Children could do nothing for your status. Hanging around kids did nothing for your social status. In fact, it made people look at you like you were weird. What is that person doing hanging around kids? Why would he talk to a child? It was not a way to get any spiritual street cred, if you will. And for any important religious leader in the first century and in the culture of the New Testament, any important religious leader would have never been caught dead talking to kids or hanging around children. But Jesus isn't like any other religious leader. He calls a child to himself. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. The word receive here is a word that means to welcome, to accept, to have as a guest. The person who, who invites people like this little child into their world, welcomes them, offers hospitality to them. Those are the kind of people who really receive me. Typically, people would only extend hospitality to people who were their social equal or higher than them on the social scale. People whose social honor was higher than them. You would invite people who were your equal or you would invite people that were more important than you socially, right? But never did you 
welcome and receive and typically show hospitality to people who were lower than you. Children would have never received that kind of hospitality or social honor. You see, proud people are eager to, to welcome the powerful and eager to welcome the wealthy. They love to show hospitality to people who can reciprocate. They love to welcome people who, by association, make them look good. Jewish rabbis of the day would have completely ignored children altogether. The religious leaders of the day, they had all sorts of ways of, of exalting themselves publicly and showing everybody how great and how important they were. You could read through the New Testament. They showed it in the way that they dressed, that made themselves look important and made themselves look great. They showed it by making a public scene whenever they were fasting or whenever they were giving alms so people could watch them and see them and say, oh, look at that great godly individual there. They made it known how great and how, and how uh, uh, godlike they were by associating themselves with the powerful and with the cultural elites of their day. And here Jesus' disciples are sort of exhibiting the same attitude. They realize that Jesus is the Messiah. They realize that he's the king. They think he's getting ready to establish his kingdom. And all they can think about is who's going to be the most important when he does. And Jesus says, he is the least among you. That's the one who's great. You shouldn't be talking about which one of you is the greatest. If you want to find out who's actually great, you should be discussing who's the least. That's the one who's the great one. Nobody talks about that. If you want to be truly great, you don't get there by exalting yourself. If you want to be great, you get there by lowering yourself by humbling yourself. You get there by finding the most insignificant people you can find, the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked, kids. Go find them. People who can do nothing for your social status and welcome them and embrace them and receive them and show hospitality to them. That's how you become great. That's what greatness looks like in my kingdom. When you do that, the world won't exalt you. It won't. It won't even notice you. But when you do that, Jesus says, you're actually welcoming me. You're actually receiving me. And when you receive me, you're actually receiving my Father as well. The point of this is all simply this. Instead of exalting themselves, instead of arguing over who is the greatest, the disciples should humble themselves. They should think much less of themselves than they do. And in order to de demonstrate that, they needed to, to, to go out and welcome those with the lowest status, the poor, even this child in Jesus' name. He's calling them to see themselves as nobodies, to see themselves as insignificant, and to embrace welcoming other nobodies, people who can do nothing for them. It was a very vivid call to humble servanthood. That's what it was a call to. Rather than exalt themselves, true followers of Christ are people who embrace humility. Who are there people who don't see how high they can claw their way to the top? They're more concerned about seeing how low they can go. They're not concerned about seeing how highly they can think of themselves. They're concerned about what level of humility is happening in their life. The word of God exalts humility all throughout. Psalm 25, verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. You want to be led by the Lord? You want to be taught his way? Be humble. Don't be proud. Proverbs 11:2. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15, 3, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. It's upside down, it's backwards. Humility comes before honor. First Peter, humble yourselves before the Lord, and in due time, he will lift you up. Of course, there's no greater example in this than the Lord Jesus himself, is there? The one who was truly great in every way. You know, we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself. 
made himself nothing. He took on human flesh. And he died in our place. Embrace humble servanthood. That was his message. That's what you want to, if you want to be great, that's what you do. Well, the message still hadn't been clear. So verse 49, John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. You just have to shake your head sometimes, don't you? At least this time it's not Peter, it's John speaking up. But don't, don't think for one minute John's speaking for himself. He's speaking for the whole crowd. And he says, Jesus, hey, by the way, Jesus... There's this other guy that we keep running into. He's exercising demons in your name. Now, we're not told who this man was. In fact, it isn't relevant. We're not told how he, how he was able to do what it is that he was doing. That, too, isn't relevant. What we do know is that he was operating in Jesus' name, not in his own. And what we do know is that he was successfully casting out demons something ironically that nine of these 12 had just failed to do themselves. But the disciples see this man. And it's almost like they're saying in themselves, okay, Jesus, we're starting to get this. If we can't see ourselves as better than one another, at least we ought to be able to see ourselves as better than outsiders that are not in our group. I got you, Jesus. We don't compare to each other. But surely we're better than that guy. Pride is a devastating thing. It is a slippery sin. What did John and the other disciples do when they came across this man who was doing this kind of ministry? We're told they tried to stop him. And the verb tense here is in the imperfect, and it indicates to us that they were continually trying to stop this man. It wasn't just a, hey, what are you doing? Maybe this isn't the great idea. They were actively opposing the man's ministry. They were doing everything they could to shut him down. We can't have somebody else doing that. We can't have somebody else delivering people from demons that's not, that, we can't accept that. We're the 12. That's our job. Oh, what was their problem with this guy? Their problem was simply this. He does not follow with us. He's not in our tribe. He's not a part of our group. We've got an exclusive corner on this ministry, and he's not a part of it. Why would they do this? Why would they do that? Why would they try to stop this man from doing the ministry? Well, they would do it for the exact same reason that they were arguing about who was the greatest. The same reason that people do the same kind of thing today. They're driven by rank pride and jealousy. They're, they're being tribalistic, exclusivistic, and in their minds, they were the only ones who had everything right, and it's not possible that somebody outside of their group could possibly get anything right and be successful at serving the Lord outside of them. It's impossible. Bishop J.C. Ryle, never one to mince his words, speaks this. He said, thousands in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They've labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They've imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. They've been ready to say of every Christian who does not see everything with their eyes, forbid him, forbid him, for he followeth not with us. If you pay close attention to the evangelical landscape of our day, it's no different than it was in Bishop Ryle's day, is it, really? You don't have to look hard and you don't have to look very far to find this same kind of activity going on all throughout evangelicalism today. And it's just as repulsive today as it was in Ryle's day. And it's just as repulsive as it was when John and the original apostles did the very same thing. There are ministers and ministries who are set up and spend the bulk of their time doing nothing other than trying to destroy and tear down other ministers and other ministries. And it's nonsense. Nonsense. Foolishness. 
They define every nuance of theology and every nuance of practical application of truth, and they attack via blog and podcast and sermon anybody who doesn't agree fully with them, anyone who's outside their circle, anyone who dares to see something differently, anyone who dares to articulate something not the way that they would do it, is a target for attack. And they take great pride in seeing themselves as more biblical and more mature and labeling other people as shallow and weak and worldly. Completely overlooking any benefit or any good for the kingdom that might come out of another person's life or ministry. Seeing only what they want to see. Looking down on anybody who doesn't embrace their positions on everything. They love nothing more than going into the battle of Bible verses with somebody and their pride is not pleased by anything more than winning the battle of Bible verses with somebody else. And it's nothing other than arrogant pride masking itself as zeal for the truth. And I'm going to tell you, there's a danger in your life and in my life that this will infect us. It is so easy for this to take root in our hearts. So easy. We have to be on guard all the time. All the time. John Wesley wrote this. He said, I have no more right, he said, to object to a man for holding a different opinion than mine than I have to differ with a man because he wears a wig and I wear my own hair. Okay, now, pause. In John Wesley's time, it was not uncommon for pastors to wear wigs. But clearly there was a dispute among whether one should or should not wear a wig. And Wesley is saying, I don't have any more right to object to a man holding a different opinion than mine than I have, uh, than I have to differ with him about where he, whether he wears a wig and I wear my own. But if he takes his wig off and he shakes the powder in my face, I shall consider it my duty to quit him as soon as possible. Now I'm with Wesley on this, all right? We can disagree about theology. He's going to say that, and we can get along with each other, but you take your wig off and shake the powder on me, and I'm out. That's it. We're done. The thing which I resolved to use every... This is the thing which I resolved to use every possible method of preventing was a narrowness of spirit, a party zeal, of being straightened in our own bowels, that miserable bigotry which makes many so unready to believe that there is any work of God but among themselves. Hey, Christian, here's a warning for you and a warning for me. There are godly, mature, Christ-honoring believers who do not agree with you on everything that you think about your faith. There are godly, mature, Christ-honoring believers in the world who see theological things differently than you see them and I see them. Hey, Calvinists, there are some godly, faithful, mature Arminians who do a lot for the kingdom of God. Hey, cessationists, there are some godly, mature, Christ-honoring continuationists out there whose ministries are valid and who are making a difference for the kingdom of Christ. Hey, premillennials, there are some godly, mature amillennialists. There's not many, but there are some out there who are doing great things for the Lord. And guess what? God hasn't commissioned you or me to be the police of that stuff and to go after people just because they don't see things the way we do. It's exactly what John and the apostles were doing with this man. They didn't know anything about him. They just knew he wasn't a part of their group. And so he needed to be shut down. Here's a couple quick warnings, sort of as a fly off of this. Anytime you and I begin to think we've got it all figured out and everybody else just needs to come along and agree with us, we're in danger. We're in danger. I can assure you of this. Every one of us is going to stand before the Lord one day, and when we do, we're going to realize that we got some things wrong. And if we can't figure that out now, we're going to be shocked on that day. Second warning, anytime you and I begin to judge people based on the tribe they belong to, the denomination they're a part of, the movement they're associated with, we're in danger. Anytime we start thinking in terms of tribalism and exclusivism, it's a problem. What does Jesus do? He said to them, do not stop him. 
Don't you dare stop that man. For the one who's not against you is for you. Now we understand from Jesus' response here that we're not talking about somebody who's preaching heresy. Jesus would have never said that about a man who was preaching heresy. There are things that are clear heresy. Somebody's preaching a gospel that's a gospel that says something other than salvation comes by grace through faith and the death, resurrection, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. Anybody who's preaching a gospel other than that is preaching heresy. And that's not what the context here is. Anyone who says the Bible isn't the word of God, anyone who says Jesus isn't God in human flesh, that's clear, abject heresy. It's not what's being taught here. He says, the man who isn't against you is for you. You leave him alone. J.C. Ryle again. The schisms and separations which are continually arising about church government, about modes of worship, are very perplexing to tender consciences. Shall we approve those divisions? We cannot do so. Union is strength. The disunion of Christians is one cause of the slow progress of vital Christianity. Do you hear what he's saying? Shall we denounce and hold up to public reprobation all who will not agree to work with us and to oppose Satan in our way? It's useless to do so. Hard words never yet made men of one mind. Unity was never yet brought about by force. What then ought we to do? Listen to this, brothers, sisters. We must leave alone those who do not agree with us and wait quietly till God shall think fit to bring us together. Whatever we may think of our divisions, the words of the Lord must never be forgotten. Forbid him not. If you follow the life of Peter, you know that Peter denies the Lord. He leaves the ministry, and Jesus comes alongside Peter by the seashore, and he restores the man to ministry. And in John chapter 21, we find that encounter. Jesus has just restored Peter, and they're walking along the road. And this is what John reports to us. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John, the one who also had leaned back against him during the Lord's Supper. And he said to him, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Here's Peter at the end of his, he's just been restored to ministry. And the first thing he's wanting to know, what about John? Tell me about John. And Jesus has said to him exclusively, listen, what I do with John is none of your business, Peter. Mind your own business. You follow me. Don't devote your time to worrying about what John's doing or what I'm doing with John. You devote your time and you devote your energy and you devote your thoughts to what's going on in your own heart. You follow me. That's what should concern you. Not what John's doing or not what I'm doing with John. I have the right to do with him whatever I want to do. It's none of your business. Mind your own business is the message. It's another stark warning to us all. close with J.C. Ryle one last time. Listen, we forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly on all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel is preached and the devil's kingdom is pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. We must try to believe that men may be true-hearted followers of Jesus Christ, and yet for some wise reason may be kept back from seeing all things in religion just as we do. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and no matter what church they belong. You can remember when Paul is in prison, there are men going around preaching, we're told in Philippians, out of selfish ambition, trying to, trying to heap pain into Paul's life. Preachers who are preaching the right gospel, but they're doing it with rotten motives and sour hearts. And you know what Paul says about that? He doesn't say, let's gather up the crowd and let's go after them and shut them down. He says, so what? So what? 
and all things Christ has preached, to God be the glory. I rejoice. Paul says, I rejoice. Yeah, they've got bad motives. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to harm me. But at the end of the day, that's not what matters. What matters is Christ is being preached. And when Christ is preached, and men are hearing the gospel, and people are being saved, and Satan is being cast out, I rejoice. I rejoice. These disciples would have been a whole lot better if they just shut their mouths, if they would have just minded their own business, and embraced the life of humble servanthood. And so would I, and so would you. Let's pray that God would make that the reality of our lives. Lord, we know we are proud people. We exalt ourselves at every opportunity. Even if we don't do it loud and verbally like these apostles did, we do it in our own hearts and our own minds. We, we look at ourselves and we compare to other people and we judge ourselves favorably and we think, man, we're something. We're something. We figure we've got all these things right and other people have it all wrong. Feel pretty good about that. It's easy for pride to find a root in our hearts and it's easy for it to, to bear fruit that we don't even see. Lord, we need you to root this out of our lives. We need you to use other people that love us to help us to see it. We need you to give us humble hearts, a humble heart that cares more about serving nobodies than it does about exalting ourselves. A humble heart that doesn't seek to be the greatest, but seeks to be the least and rejoices when nobody gives us any attention. The kind of people who can embrace a child or the poor or an outcast or to somebody else the world doesn't care about who has no status and find joy in the embrace and in serving and in welcoming them. And we need you, Lord, to destroy the pride that would exalt us to ourselves against other people. And we need you to, to destroy the kind of pride that creates tribalism and exclusivism and that says that we're better than everybody else outside of our clan. Or teach us the, the, the lesson you were teaching Peter. Our concern, our driving concern should be following you. Our own hearts, our own lives before you. Lord, you have to help us with this. You have to. Because we won't do it ourselves. Make us humble. Because you exalt the humble. You teach the humble. You give wisdom to the humble. And that's what we want. Make it so by the power of your spirit. We pray for Christ's sake. Lord, help us to see your example. The one who deserved to exalt himself, lowered himself. died on a Roman cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. May we live like that for you, for it's in your name we pray. Amen.